The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Hold firm to your word, Father, and not forsake it. It can be hard to understand. It could be hard to have eyes of faith when things don't appear the same as in your word at times. Father, when uh, we don't see miracles and prophets and things, Things get very difficult, and yet you've made promises, and those promises we can rely on and we can trust in and we can wait for. So give us the grace, Father, even as Andre prayed, that we would be uh, not like historical Israel, that we would learn, and yet we would uh, do so, Father, because we see the grace that you uh, have bestowed on historical Israel and your care for them and how worthy you are of being served. And in particular, God, we ask for your Holy Spirit to be that which keeps us and keeps us faithful to you and to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can turn in your scriptures to uh, Isaiah 7. Last year, we covered uh, the passage that we read earlier. It was a long reading, so thank you for sticking with me. Isaiah 7, 1 through eight ten. It was the passage that contains the beloved Christian, I'm going to put prophecy uh, in quotes, of Isaiah seven fourteen, quoted in Matthew one twenty three. I put it in quotes because it, it's not a prophecy at all, in the, in the initial context at least. It was a sign to Ahaz, and if you don't remember all of that, that's okay. We're going to review it in just a few minutes. But our goal this year uh, is to cover the verses which follow. So we did 7.1 to 8.10. This year we're going to do 8.11 to 9.7, just 20 verses that contain another beloved Christmas prophecy from which Handel's Messiah gets much of its text, um, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. In this section, these 20 verses are quoted uh, six times in the New Testament and referred to, alluded to indirectly six times. So it's a very... Uh, important section of scripture, very difficult section as well. Uh, and in fact, to understand the section, I think we're going to need at least four things. Uh, we're going to need a relatively short geography lesson. Uh, I'm going to call it a taco lesson. I'll explain that in just a second. Uh, a bit of a longer history lesson, a medium-sized reminder of what we learned last year, and then one last small discussion about the book of Isaiah as a whole. So again, a geography lesson, a history lesson, a reminder of what we learned last year, and then a small discussion about the book of Isaiah as a whole, all in preparation for trying to understand these 20 verses, which are so important but are very difficult. And you may wonder, will we ever get to the 20 verses We will, and it won't be long when we get there because of all the preparation we're going to do to hopefully get us all on the same page and ready to look at them. But let's start with our taco lesson, our our geography lesson. So there's going to be four nations that are really important for you to know about as we study this section together. There's four nations, and if you aren't familiar with this area of the world, they call it the Fertile Crescent. And I'm going to put a, what to me looks like a taco up there, but you see the, uh, the green part is the crescent, like a crescent moon, and that's very fertile. There's two rivers that run on the east side of it, the Tigris or Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, and then on the, the uh, west side um, is the, the Israel, the Levant, and all the, you know, near the Mediterranean, that's a very fertile area. But in between, what I tried to depict with the shell of the taco is desert, nothing but desert, and uh, 
there you can see why these countries, in fact, if you include Babylon, which isn't circled because it's not important in our story today, you see the crescent and how the, the important cities were along that crescent. But for us, the four indicated cities are very important. There's Jerusalem, which is the capital of what country? Judah in particular, okay, because we will have to make a distinction here in the divided kingdom. Jerusalem was the capital of Judah, Samaria the capital of Israel, not the same. They, did, they definitely have same origin from Jacob, but not the same country. And then Damascus is the capital of, even today, Syria. And it's really important that we enunciate here. It's Syria because Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, two separate countries again. Uh, Assyria being a, a major world power, Syria being a country that was similar to Israel in those days. And then obviously Babylon to the south we won't talk about during this, this time together. But those four countries are going to be important for you to know. Judah, Israel, Syria, and Assyria are going to all play major parts in understanding these sex, this section of Scripture. So hey, our geography lesson is done. That's one out of four, but now we get to the history lesson, which is going to be a little bit longer. A history lesson in two parts. Uh, first, the short part, a timeline. These are some important dates for you to, to really make sure uh, that you have sort of in your mind, because it's gonna, we're going to be moving to verses that are difficult to understand. You're going to want to make sure that you take some time to really try to internalize at least a couple key ones of these dates. Let me just walk through them. In 736 B.C., there was a guy named Ahaz, perhaps arguably the worst king ever in the history of the southern kingdom. He might uh, have some competition with a guy named Manasseh, but uh, Ahaz was an awful king, and he became the king of the southern kingdom around 736. And as often is the case, when a new king would come on the throne, that was a great opportunity for you to go and, and mess with them, for you to go and uh, try to take some of their territory because it was a time of transition. And at that time, Aram, which is Syria, it's just another name for Syria, and Israel, the northern kingdom, were themselves being threatened by the big bully, Assyria, and they needed some help. And so they thought, well, now's a great chance for us to go and ask Judah to join with us to band together against Assyria, the three of us against the one superpower. And Ahaz was not having it. He wouldn't, wouldn't allow it. And so Syria and Israel said, well, okay, then we'll force it to happen. We'll come invade you. We'll take over. We'll put a new king in who will join with us. And that's what happened around 735 or 734 B.C. Well, as we'll learn and as we learned last year, as we'll review again here in just a second, that didn't happen. Assyria rather came and destroyed Damascus and punished Samaria before they were able to work out their designs. And they came because Ahaz uh, expedited the process in the same way that you can pay a little more for expedited shipping around the Christmas season, right? He uh, paid a little bit more to get them to speed up and come destroy Damascus, which was Syria, and Samaria, which was Israel. But again, that was uh, not a good idea, as we'll see here in just a second. Uh, just a decade later, Assyria came and destroyed the northern, northern kingdom, and then Hezekiah in the south became king. A great king, perhaps one of the best ever, if not the best, again, arguably, certainly up in the, in the top echelon of righteous kings of Judah. He became king, 
and immediately uh, was having to deal with, or I say immediately, very soon having to deal with Assyria, the country that had just destroyed Syria and Israel, was coming now to, to mess with them. And that is going to be an extremely important event. And it's going to be the event we'll see upon which Isaiah, the entire book, is uh, centered. And it was an extremely important event in Israel's history. Assyria had destroyed and devastated Syria, destroyed and devastated Israel, had come and destroyed 90% of Judah, every city except for Jerusalem, and came to destroy Jerusalem, was outside his walls, and God saves Jerusalem by destroying 185,000 Assyrians in one night. And then later Babylon destroys Jerusalem, which again is not going to be important for our uh, section today, but just wanted to at least make sure you knew where that fit in. So those are some some key dates. Now, um, we have a chance. We don't always have this, but um, we actually have a chance to read some non-biblical history that we have, right? I mean, the Bible is an ancient document that has been preserved because people recognize it alone is an inspired ancient document, and people rightly were very careful, and maybe we'll have a chance one day to, to teach some about how the Bible was preserved, but amazing uh, uh, effort has been put into preserving the Bible exactly as written because it was recognized as a divine document. But there are other writings, ancient writings out there. And every now and then, the practice of archaeology, and I wanted to define that for the kids, archaeology is just when you go out and you dig up old dirt and you look under it and you find things. I don't know if you've ever gone out and dug and found something. Well, if you dig far enough and you dig in the right places, you might find some really interesting things. And sure enough, there are people who do that, scientists who do that for a living, and they were digging in Nineveh, in the 1800s, and they found what I'll show you here is a, a six-sided prism carved out of stone called the Taylor Prism, named after the person who found it. And my kids are smiling because they heard about this in Jonathan Park recently, and I piped up and said, hey, I'm talking about that on Sunday. Uh, Jonathan Park's little kids program they listen to. This is the Taylor Prism. We've found since three of them all very similar, all with the same content on them, and it's essentially a record of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria who came to destroy Israel in 701. It's just really fascinating to see, uh, you will see as we read this, I'm going to read a portion of it to you, you know, references to Hezekiah and things that, you know, things we know from the Bible. And I'm going to read just a few pages uh, as our part of our history lesson here, just again to give you a backdrop into uh, the history that's going to be really important for us understanding our passage. So I'm going to I'm going to read this to you again. Sennacherib was the king of Assyria who came at 701, who destroyed almost all of Judah, and was outside of Jerusalem's gates when the angel of the Lord slew his army. This is the king whose annals we are now reading. Again, this is not inspired. Uh, at all, but it's interesting history. All right, here we go. Sennacherib, the great king, the mighty king, king of the world, king of Assyria, king of the four quarters, the wise shepherd, favorite of the great gods, guardian of right, lover of justice. I don't think we're going to find humility in this list. (laughs) Who lends support, who comes to the aid of the destitute, who performs pious acts, perfect hero, mighty man, first among all princes, the powerful one who consumes the insubmissive, who strikes the wicked with a thunderbolt. What an introduction. David, is that how you introduce people at G3? Okay. In my third campaign, 
So, you know, they have military campaigns, right? And my third, I went against the Hittite land. That would include Israel. It's the west, the Levant. I went against the Hittite land. The officials, nobles, and people of Ekron, that was a Philistine city, who had thrown Potty, their king, into fetters of iron and had given him over to Hezekiah. Hey, how about that, right? A reference to our Hezekiah. And kept him in confinement like an enemy. You know, there are people who will say, uh, it's not something we need to spend time on, but they'll say, hey, the Bible's all made up. It was made up in the, you know, first, second centuries A.D. It was made up to try to explain, you know, certain traditions, and, and it's not true. We have ancient documents that attest uh, to the kings of Israel. It's real history. We don't need to spend time on that. It's, it's a silly idea, but there are people who hold it, just so you know. Here we have a reference to Hezekiah. As for Hezekiah, the Judahite, who did not submit to my yoke, 46 of his strong walled cities, 46 of his strong walled cities, as well as the small towns in the area. I mean, remember, Judah's not a big country. All of Israel is the size of New Jersey. All of it. Now, you just take two-tenths, two-twelfths of it, two tribes, and you're talking about 46 cities within it, strong walled cities, as well as the small towns in their area, which were without number, by leveling with battering rams and by bringing up siege engines and by attacking and storming on foot, by mines, tunnels, and breaches. That's some pretty sophisticated military action. I besieged and took them, 200,000 people, great and small, male and female, horses, mules, asses, camels, cattle, and sheep without number. I brought them away, I brought away from them and counted as spoil. I mean, just here, the devastation. Again, this isn't inspired, but, uh, and it is meant to make the king look really good, obviously, but it's not far from the truth, as we're going to see. Judah was completely devastated by Assyria. Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird, I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city. That's definitely, right? That's 701. I threw up earthworks against him. The one that would come out of the city gate, I turned back to his misery. Remember the misery that he taunted? You guys are all going to be destined to eat your own dung and drink your own urine because of the siege and the famine. His cities, what, which I despoiled, I cut off from his land, and thus I diminished his land. That's interesting. He didn't actually talk about destroying Jerusalem, the prize city. That's interesting, isn't it, that that's not included in his annals? I added to the former tribute, and I laid upon him the surrender of their land and impost, gifts for my majesty. As for Hezekiah, the terrifying splendor of my majesty overcame him, and the Arabs and his mercenary troops, which he had brought in to strengthen Jerusalem, his royal city, they deserted him. In addition to the 30 talents of gold and 800 talents of silver, and he, he lists all these things, uh, daughters, his harem, his male and female physicians, which he had brought after me to Nineveh, my royal city, to pay tribute and to accept servitude. He dispatched messengers. So Hezekiah, according to Sennacherib's annals, paid a lot of money to Arabs, to mercenaries to come help, and even to Assyria, according to Sennacherib at least. So there's our history lesson. And again, it revolves around that really key event around 701 when Assyria ravaged all of Judah, but ultimately was unable to defeat Jerusalem. Now let me just quickly show with you, you know, four takeaways. I commented on these as we read, but just four takeaways from, from that reading. One, you saw Sennacherib's pride. It was pretty obvious. That was on display, right? There was, there was note of Hezekiah paying, trying to get help, right? He said that he brought in mercenaries. He said he tried to pay off Sennacherib himself. 
Uh, we saw Judah's devastation, 46 cities, 200,000 people taken. And we saw really strangely, I mean, if you were going to have uh, a long column of text about what you did to Judah, you'd certainly want to highlight the destruction of Jerusalem, right? I mean, you still have reliefs of that in Rome, of Titus carrying away and destroying Jerusalem, the Roman uh, general doing that. I mean, Jerusalem's destruction would be something you would certainly want to highlight, and strangely enough, it's not there. So let's just look at how uh, those things... Um, I'm, I'm, we're going to spend a little bit of time, again, just... Uh, uh, trying to help us get a feel for this history. Just all of these things are uh, recorded in the Bible as well and recorded very similar to what we read in this Taylor prism. Listen to Sennacherib and how God describes him in Isaiah 10. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. God says it's me, it's because of me that they're going against this people. Yet it does not so intend, nor does Assyria plan so in its heart. But rather its purpose is to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says, are not my princes all kings? And then he lists them. As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom I did this, for I have understanding. I removed the boundaries of the peoples and plundered their treasuries. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. And my hand reached to the riches of the people like a nest. As one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth. And there was no one that flapped its wing or opened its beak or chirped. And God says, is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? Of course not. You can see, again, just as I highlight Sennacherib's annals, uh, how boastful he was. I seated, I tore away, I did that. And that's exactly what we see in the scriptures. Sennacherib was a mighty king. He was an amazing warrior, right? But it was God who enabled him to do it. And God was uh, not pleased with his arrogant heart. Second, Hezekiah's payments, right? Did Hezekiah actually do that? Is that something that happened? I'm going to just read you a portion from 2 Kings 18, uh, which is the historical account, not in the prophets, not in the latter prophets of, our, of Isaiah, but in the former prophets of Kings. I want to read to you uh, Sennacherib coming against Judah and seeing what the Bible says about that. Listen to 2 Kings 18. Just listen out. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. That's right. That's what we read, right? All of them. Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish. Lachish was the second biggest city. All right, it'd be like Macon behind Atlanta, right? And he was, it was the second last to go. So he's there. He's about to siege and take Lachish. And Hezekiah says, I've done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will, I will bear. 
So the king of Assyria required Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of Yahweh and in the treasuries of the king's house. And at that time, Hezekiah cut off, from the gold, cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of Yahweh and from the doorpost which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So sure enough, he did try to assuage the king of Assyria, but it's like people today who uh, we're dealing with a security incident. I think a lot of you know uh, much of the world is right now, and you know people who get ransomware on your servers, they ask you for a certain amount, and then you pay it, and then what happens? Hey, I actually would like a little bit more. I, I've changed my mind. It seems like you were able to come up with that. I bet you can come up with some more. Well, Hezekiah also uh, tried, according to the taunts of uh, Sennacherib, uh, he also tried to get help elsewhere, right? It says in 2 Kings 18, Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence you have? You say, but they are only empty words, I have counsel and strength for war. Now whom, on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who rely on him. Whether he did or not, I'm not sure. Uh, it's definitely taunted by Sennacherib that he brought in Arab uh, mercenaries. But for sure, as we saw last year, and I won't take the time to read this year, but we'll talk about next week, he did end up getting in league with Babylon to get help as well, Hezekiah did. So again, we see these payments are certainly something that the Bible confirms were things that Hezekiah did in response to the coming of Sennacherib. Again, Judah's devastation, let me just read quickly. Uh, this is throughout the book of Isaiah, but let me just read at the very beginning. Uh, in chapter 1, your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion, that's Jerusalem, is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless Yahweh of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. What was Sodom and Gomorrah like? Complete devastation, right? Burned with fire, complete devastation. That's what Judah looked like. It looked like Sodom and Gomorrah minus the one little town that was left, which was Jerusalem. And interestingly enough, as I mentioned, Sennacherib in his annals doesn't report the destruction of Jerusalem. But listen, after that passage we just read in Isaiah 10, where, he's, where God is um, getting on to Sennacherib for his haughtiness, and saying, why are you boasting? Listen to what he says uh, is going to happen as a result of his haughtiness. Therefore the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors. And under his glory a fire will be kindled like a burning flame. And the light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in a single day. And he will destroy the glory of his forest and of his fruitful garden, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. And the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down. Now it will come about in that day that the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. 
So Israel was delivered. Judah was delivered. Jerusalem was delivered even after all that destruction. So we finished our geography lesson. We finished our history lesson. I know we're getting to Isaiah 8, 11 and following, but I want to remind us really briefly what we learned last year because Isaiah 8, 11 and following follow Isaiah 7, 1 through 8, 10. And so it would be helpful since it's been 52 weeks since we last covered this to just quickly run through what we learned. I'll try to do it really fast. Again, it's structured as a chiasm with the the centerpiece being Assyria's devastation of Judah. And ultimately, it's the start of it is when Ahaz is being confronted with Israel and Syria coming, trying to deplace, replace him as king, dethrone him as king. He's afraid. He's 20 years old, 16 years old. I don't remember the exact age. He's, he's young. He just became king. He's already lost like 200,000 of his people in an earlier battle to Israel and Syria. In fact, he lost, I think, 150,000, and then they took another 200,000. And you'll recall there was a prophet, Oded, who said, hey, you're about to kill these 200,000 of your brothers, and you have your own sins? Mm-mm. Send them back. And they send him back, but still, he's been devastated. And so rightly, Ahaz is fearing as they are coming to outside his walls. But there was a prophecy given. The prophecy was, you don't have to be afraid. I know you have good reason to. They've defeated you in the past. They're about to defeat you again, it seems like. But look, they're like a match. When you strike and it's like this big flame, oh, look at that flame, but then in how many seconds does that thing go out? That's what they're like. They look like a flame, but it's like a smoldering stub. It's about to go out. In fact, in only 65 years, they're not even going to be a people anymore. But certainly, you don't need to worry about them right now. And he says, in fact, I'll give you a sign so that you don't have to be afraid. Ask whatever you want, whatever sign you want, and it will. I will provide it to you in the same way that I provided a sign to Gideon. I will provide a sign to you so that you don't have to be afraid. And Ahaz has already made up his mind I'm going to pay off the king of Assyria. I am not going to trust in God. I've seen what Israel and Syria has done to me before. I need help. I need real help. God's not real help. I need real help. And God says, I know that's what you're thinking. I'm going to give you a sign anyways. There's going to be a child born. And before that child is old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, before that child is able to cry, my father or mother, these two kings who you dread, their land will be forsaken. That's the sign given, right? He says, but, and then he launches into the centerpiece, because of the choice you made, Assyria, who you're about to go pay, is now going to come devastate the country because of the choice you made. And he talks about how in verse uh, 17 of chapter 8, excuse me, of chapter 7, Yahweh will bring on you and your people and on your father's house such days as have never come since you split as a, as a nation. So you think, you go back to Rehoboam and the splitting of the kingdom, there's never been such bad days for the country because of what you did, Ahaz. And Assyria is going to come and depopulate the region, etc., etc. And then comes the birth of that child, Maher Shalhal Hashbaz, swift to the booty, speedy to the prey. It's not going to take long at all for Assyria to come and despoil Israel and Syria. And sure enough, if you recall, I can't pull it back up right now, the history of the timeline, it was only a year later and those countries were defeated and they had to withdraw from Judah. This sign child is born um, and and this is what was given to Ahaz and to anyone because it was a public sign. Remember, they took a big plaque and wrote on it and made it obvious for anyone who wanted to see it. For anyone who wanted to trust God, this sign had been given. 
But, again, Assyria is going to be a problem. And as we finished last year, we talked about how Assyria was like a raging river. There was a gentle river that flowed uh, in Jerusalem, the Shiloh. If they would have just trusted in the Lord, he would have cared for them. But instead, they went and got this raging river of Assyria to come, and they can't control it. It's going to overflow its banks. You thought you were going to use it to your purposes? Nope. It's going to overflow your banks. It's going to reach all the way. It's going to fill your land and reach all the way to the neck. O Emmanuel, right? That's at the end of verse 8, chapter 8. And then this change, chapter 8, verse 9. Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered. Give your ear. When he says, O peoples, okay, that's, that's, it, that's Assyria and all the groups of peoples that they would bring. When he talks about the people, this people, he's talking about his people. So he's talking to Nineveh, he's talking to Assyria here. Though they're going to spread all the over the land, though they're going to reach to the neck, be broken, O peoples, and be shattered. Give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand, for God is with us. And that's where we ended. And that is, for sure, a prophecy of God delivering Jerusalem despite all that had happened. And that is the context as we start chapter 8, verse 11. Ahaz has failed. Assyria is coming. Assyria is going to devastate the land. They have an awful king in Sennacherib who's going to come and do awful things. But as he comes outside Jerusalem, he will fail. Now, we're almost ready to start with chapter 8, verse 11. Almost. I just want to do one more short thing. Um, and note, uh, make a quick note about the book of Isaiah as a whole. I mentioned that that is the context we need to keep in mind as we start 8.11, but it's really the context of the entire book. It's really the context of the entire book. In fact, Ahaz is a bit of a literary foil for Hezekiah. The point of the book of Isaiah is what is Hezekiah going to do in the midst of this Assyrian crisis? What is he going to do? How is he going to act? Ahaz gives us the foil, the backdrop, the wrong thing to do. What is he going to do? And you can see that that's the context for the entire book is I just quickly, and we do this in Old Testament service, so I'm not going to take a long time here, but if you look at the structure of Isaiah overall, after this section we're in now, which is 1 through 12, it immediately launches into a statement about what's going to happen to all the nations, especially to Babylon, right? And the argument here is... These things are going to happen to the nations. Don't trust in them. Don't get their help. In fact, as he goes to 28:35, that's exactly what he says. Listen to 28 chapters 28 verse 35. Listen to for instance chapter 30. Um, Woe to the rebellious children, declares Yahweh, who execute a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh. You know, this book is about Hezekiah trusting the Lord in the midst of the Assyrian crisis and don't do what Ahaz did. Chapter 31, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek Yahweh. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster, and does not retract his words. So that's the point. And then in 36 to 39 is the history of what happened. 
It actually goes in and shows what happened when Assyria came and goes into the details. We'll talk about that next week. But again, just want to point out, this, is a, this event in this context is extremely important for the entire book of Isaiah, but certainly for the passage that we're going to look at. So now we're there. We've covered our four things. We're going we're gonna to go through Isaiah 8, starting in chapter, excuse me, in verse 11. Now, for those of Isaiah's followers, for those who would listen to him and his message, he calls them his disciples in verse 16. Do you see that in 8.16? Seal the law among my disciples. Those are the ones that would have heard Isaiah heard the prophecy about not needing to worry about Israel and Samaria, seen the child born, recognized that the sign came true, that the city was delivered from Israel and Syria, and now are awaiting the Assyrian king in the decades to come, right? Those are the people who would be listening to Isaiah, would have heard, would have seen the prophecy verified, would have heard him say, Assyria is going to come, devastate our land, but we can trust in the Lord, ultimately he will deliver us, right? Those are the ones listening. But still, you'd want to hear more, wouldn't you? Like, what? What's going to happen? What will it be like? What should we do? What does it mean that God is with us? Say more, Isaiah. And that's what he does in the 20 verses that we have in front of us, 8.11 to 9.7. He will use the word for, which is giving a reason or an explanation. He'll use it five times. In 8.11, in 9.1, 9.4, 9.5, and 9.6. It's not always translated as four in our English versions, but he is doing a lot of explaining about what the disciples, what his followers, what hopefully Hezekiah need to do as they think about this Assyrian onslaught. So what will it be like? What should we do? What does it mean that God is with us? Well, the first explanation comes immediately in 8.11 with our first four. And the explanation is actually stated down in verse 14. God himself will become a sanctuary. God will be a sanctuary for them in the midst of this Assyrian crisis. A sanctuary is just a holy place. It's the same, comes from the same root word as the adjective holy. It's a holy place. It's commonly used for the temple and the tabernacle throughout the Old Testament. They had a sanctuary in Jerusalem. But this says that God himself would become a sanctuary. Sanctuaries are often considered places where you can at least seek asylum, even if you don't always succeed, even if you're not always effective. There are places where people might seek asylum. Do you remember when Solomon became king? Uh, and, you know, there was the, um, was it Adonijah, I think was his name, was the other, other brother who wanted to be king, and he went and declared himself king, but it didn't happen. Remember Bathsheba? came with the prophet Nathan and said, hey, I don't know if you know David, but Adonijah has declared himself king. He said, nope, 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 Solomon's going to be king. They made him king, and Adonijah and Joab, who had followed him, realized, uh-oh, we're in trouble. <laughs> That's the actual official designation there, and now we are rebels. What do we do? Well, what did Adonijah do? He ran to the temple and laid hold of the altar. It didn't uh, always work in their case. Joab did the same. Uh, sometimes people were pulled from the altar and not granted the asylum they sought. But nevertheless, sanctuaries are considered that. In fact, we have in America sometimes, right, if you heard of sanctuary cities where undocumented uh, immigrants can go and hopefully escape being deported uh, is the idea behind those cities. 
Even in Jeremiah's day, if I just turn over for a second and read you a couple verses from Jeremiah, they viewed the sanctuary, the temple, as inviolable. Like God would not allow the sanctuary to be destroyed. I mean, no matter what devastation happened around them, how bad it was, Jerusalem would not be taken because the sanctuary was there. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. So you want the place to, to remain? You want to be able to stay? It's not just because you got a temple in here. You got to be righteous if you want to be able to stay. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, This is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. Like if I repeat it enough, surely it'll be true. Well, that was a view of the sanctuary. And in reality, again, with good reason, it is a, it is a place of asylum. Ahaz had stripped the sanctuary. In fact, when Assyria came and defeated Syria, Ahaz went up to see that and said, Hey, I like the altar in Syria. And he had taken that altar or design and made it in uh, the temple in Judah. He had replaced the altar in Judah with that and had taken out a lot of the other furnishings which God had said. So he had desecrated uh, the sanctuary in Judah. But unlike that building, God is still holy and still is inviolable. If he's for you, no one can be against you. And God says, I will be for you a sanctuary. If you want to know what to do in terms of the Assyrian onslaught that's coming. If you want to know, if you want me to explain it further, I will be a sanctuary for you. But it won't be true for everyone. Look, look past verse 14. He will become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, that's the northern and southern, he will be a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble over them. They will, be, they will fall and be broken. They will be snared and caught. So for those, some group, we'll tell who those are in just a second. For some group, God will be a sanctuary. But for most of all Israel, north and south, and many in Jerusalem, he won't be a sanctuary. He'll be a rock to stumble over. They will be taken. They will be shattered, the same word that is used of Israel in chapter 7 of being shattered as a people. So for some people, they will experience God as a sanctuary, a place of asylum against the Assyrian onslaught. But for very most, for almost the majority, they will not. They will be taken, they will be shattered, they will be snared. What makes the difference between those two? Well, I skipped over three verses that explain it. For thus Yahweh spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all this people call a conspiracy. You're not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is Yahweh of hosts whom you shall regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. So the question of whether or not God would be for them a sanctuary or a rock of stumbling is whether they would fear what the people fear or whether they would fear God. Now, if it's unclear, it shouldn't be, but if it's unclear that what he's referring to there are some Hebrew word plays going on in there that tie it back to what Ahaz did very clearly, right? He says, don't say conspiracy, kasher. And in 7.4, he said to Ahaz, be calm, kashet. Very similar words. In a conspiracy, what we mean by that is, you know, there's several times in the Bible where someone uh, makes a coup d'etat, as it were, right? You think uh, the best use case or the, the most memorable one is when uh, Adaliah, the queen, tore her clothes and shouted, treason, treason, you know, conspiracy, conspiracy. And that's what that word is. It means, you know, 
somebody has gathered together and now I'm in big trouble. You know, shout out because maybe some people will come to my help because I need help. And that's what Ahaz did. He sees this this conspiracy, this confederation of Israel and Syria coming, and he says, help! You know, and he cries out to Assyria to get the help he needs. And, and God says, don't do that. Don't say conspiracy. Don't shout. Don't worry. Don't go, ah, Assyria, what do we do? No, calm down. Don't be afraid of them. Do not fear. If you, you ought to fear, but you know who you ought to fear is me. Fear me. I'm holy. Do not fear what all these other people fear. Fear me. And if you do that, and again, the vast majority didn't. The vast majority said, no, we need help. God's not real enough or whatever argument they made. Hey, now that's brass tacks. They're outside our wall. We got to do something. For those people, they would snare. They would be snared. They would be taken. But for those who feared God, who didn't do that, who trusted in the Lord, who didn't look to others as Ahaz did, they would experience God as a sanctuary. Now, did they understand how that would happen? No, no, but they had a promise. They had seen a promise. They had seen a sign. They had seen it come through before. They knew Isaiah was a true prophet, and now he's made a promise that they're going to be shattered. They're going to be shattered. They don't fully know how, and that's what he's going to explain. He's going to give further explanation, but they can trust him, not fear others, and know that God would be to them a sanctuary. And that's the core of the message for Isaiah to those who in the decades to come, because remember the Assyrian crisis, the, the, the Christ, Syrian Ephraimite crisis, the, the crisis where Syria and Israel were trying to come, that was 735. When Assyria came later, that was 701. So in three decades, a little less than three decades, they're going to have to face this. And he says, here's my message to you. Fear God, he'll be a sanctuary to you. Don't do what Ahaz and others did. And he says in 8.16, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. So, hey, that's it. Package it up, as it were. Roll up the scroll, tie it up, seal the words, mark them as final. This is what you need to know. This is what you need to stick to. I mean, I like that David said about Sweden, right? They're, they're kind of, they need to stick to the scriptures. They need to, they need to hold to them, regardless of what's around them. That's what the disciples needed to do. In fact, now it's a time of waiting, he says in 8.17. I'm going to wait for Yahweh, who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will look eagerly from him. Why do you look eagerly from someone? Because they're not there, right? Like, wait, are they coming? Is that them coming down the driveway? Was that them? My Life 360 thing just went off. Was that, are they home? You know, he's got to wait. Because for 30 years, it's going to look like God has turned their back on them. Because the northern kingdom is going to be completely exiled. The southern kingdom is going to be completely destroyed, and it's going to look like God is not there. But don't lose heart. Trust him. He's made a promise. Bind up the word. Seal it among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who looks like he's hiding, who is, in fact, hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I'll look eagerly for him because he's made a promise to deliver us. And then he says, finally, Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwell on Mount Zion. So God gave a sign to Ahaz. He's given signs to the faithful believers as well who want them. What are those signs? His children. What are those children? Maher Shaho Hashbaz. They could look and say, I remember. We were worried about Israel and Syria. But remember what he said. He said within just a few years before the child was born and would become a little fellow that could say my father or my mother. Yeah, sure enough, they were devastated. And now what was his other son? That's right, Sher Jashub. A remnant will remain. We're not going to get to chapter 10, but we read it earlier. He's going to bring a remnant back. He's going to bring a remnant through this. And so 
That's right. His other child, it came true, and so I'm going to remember, share Joseph. It's going to come true here as well. I'm going to remember. I'm going to fear the Lord. I'm not going to get help from others. But, again, the vast majority of the population would not think that way, and they would be tempted by others to not think that way. And that's what happens in verse 19. When they, when those who do not wait for the Lord, who do not trust in his word, who do choose to fear others, when they say to you, I don't know, what should we do? What do we do? What do we do? Consult the mediums. Let's, let's ask the spiritists. Can you think of somebody else who did that when they were in a bind? Saul, right? I mean, he had it rough. I mean, the Philistines were invading. They didn't even have weapons. Like, you know, they had taken all the iron out. What do we do? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go find the witch at Endor, and I'm going to get Samuel, and he'll tell me what to do, right? Well, they're going to say the same thing. And, and again, I don't mean to... It was awful. Again, I mean, it was a horrible situation that they were facing with no food, famine. I mean, I understand the difficulty of it, but nevertheless, God still asks them, trust me in it. And they're going to say, many people are going to say, don't trust the Lord, don't go to his law and testimony, let's consult the mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter. And, God, and as I said, should not a people consult their God? Don't, don't listen to them when they do that. Don't consult the dead on behalf of the living. Go to the law and the testimony. If they, if those people who are telling you to go to other places, don't speak according to the word that's been delivered, sealed and bound up, if they don't speak according to that, then they have, it's because they have no dawn, right? There's no light that's going to come to them. What is dawn? It's not that he said they have no light. It's they have no dawn. What is dawn? We use the phrase light at the end of the tunnel, right? Or dawn is the light at the beginning of the day, right? You've been through the night. You've you got to wait for the light to come. Well, those people aren't going to make it to the light. They're not going to have the dawn, right? They're going to make it they're gonna go all through the darkness, and they're not going to make it to the dawn. They're going to give up. You've got to hold on. You've got to wait. You've got to trust in the Lord and don't give up. They will pass through the land. These same people will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, right? They're under siege. They're in, in hard straits. They're hungry. It will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged. They will curse their king and their God as they look upward, right? So they've done everything they can. They've given up. They've consulted spiritists, mediums, now they're cursing God. They've given up. It's just too much. And then a really hard verse to translate, verse 22. In fact, if you, no one uses the NRSV here, but if you, if you look at the NRSV on here, they just say, um, you know, too difficult to interpret, or, you know, the Hebrew is uncertain here, right? And literally what it says, or meaning of Hebrew uncertain, there's my notes. Literally it is, then they or he, it means the people, then they will look to the earth and behold. Okay, behold is, hey, what is that? Something, pay attention, something new. Look to, they look to the earth, so they were looking up, they're cursing God, right? They're cursing their king, and then they look down, as it were, they look around, they look to the earth, and behold, distress and darkness, gloom of anguish, darkness being banished being thrust away. It's really hard to understand what is being said in that verse. Most take it to mean that the people are being thrust into darkness. But it's actually opposite. It's exactly opposite. Those who consult mediums who have come to the bitter end and have cursed God 
looked down after cursing God and their king, and behold, the darkness is clearing. It's the common Hebrew word for an exile, someone who's been banished, someone who's been sent out. It's just odd because there's, what's, there's no into here. It says banished into darkness. All these things that have been their experience, all this darkness, all this gloom, all this anguish, they look down after cursing God. It's going away. It's going away. The darkness is, is being driven away. What's happening? Well, this is where the text changes, and we get another one of our fours. None of your versions. I don't think a single one have the word four at the beginning of 9-1 or in the Hebrew 8-23. But it's the word four. A lot of them translate it as but because they mistranslate the previous verse and think that people are being banished into darkness. But in reality, the darkness is starting to lift. The dawn is starting to come, and those who cursed God didn't wait long enough. But those who held on and held firm and, and stuck to the word and to the testimony, it's time for the light to come. Because, verse 9, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1, because light is going to replace darkness. Light is replacing darkness. There is no more gloom for her who is in anguish. And now, for the next seven verses, it's not going to look like it did before. It's not going to be hunger and famish and and the Lord's turned his face away from us, and where is he? It's going to be exactly the opposite. It's going to be light. It's going to be God's deliverance. And the other thing that's different about this portion of the text is it becomes past tense. Again, your versions may not. If you have the ESV, it does, but it may not. What happens here is Isaiah had been speaking to his disciples about the future, You've seen the deliverance of, of Jerusalem from Assyria, from Syria and Israel. You've seen my child that was born that testified to that. In 30 years, we're going to have a worse situation because of what Ahaz did. But know that it's going to be okay, but people are going to tempt you. They're going to say, consult the spiritists and the mediums who mutter and whisper. They're going to curse their God. Don't do that. The dawn is coming. And now he's going to say, it came. He's going to look as, as one from a perspective who's there and say, it came. There was light. There was light that came. The people that were in darkness were no longer in light. And he's going to explain what happened. He's going to explain how that happened. How did that happen? For there's no more gloom. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with content. That's nowhere near Judah. That's the very tip of the country up at the north, the very northern tribes. And so... That's interesting. Why is he talking about them now as he's talking about the deliverance of Judah? We'll get back to that. He treated the land, in earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with content, but later on he'll make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So what is Isaiah doing here? He's, he's starting to talk about this transition from darkness to light, and he needs to describe it in some way to the people. How would you describe such a massive transition from darkness to glorious light? How would you describe it? How does Isaiah describe it? Unfortunately, no one can agree on what Isaiah says at this point. Part of the difficulty is Matthew says Jesus fulfilled this, right? Matthew says that's why Jesus withdrew into the regions of Galilee and, and Nazareth, uh, into the region of Zebulun and Ephali, to, to fulfill this word. And so in the NASB that I'm reading from, it says later on he will make it glorious in the future. And so they, you know, I guess take what Matthew said, and this is about a future event. The ESV translates it in the latter time, he has made glorious by the way of the sea. 
He's made glorious something, something in the day of light when Assyria was defeated. But what? What, did, what happened in the northern kingdom that uh, he had made glorious that makes any sense of that? The King James Version says, translates it very differently. It says, at first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Afterward, he more grievously afflicted her. The argument here is that the northern kingdom was invaded in subsequent uh, uh, attempts by Assyria, and it got worse each time. And, and, and that's true. And they take the word made glorious. You guys may have heard the word glory in Hebrew is just the word weight. And they say, well, it doesn't mean glorious here. It means he made it heavier. His, you know, their affliction was heavier this time. So what are we to do to understand this? Well, like we often do, primarily we're going to wait and try to find something easier to help us get back to it. But I'll give you a couple of initial thoughts. Initially, I'm opposed to the King James Version because I don't understand how saying, hey, it was bad, but it's going to be worse, really helps with this theme of we're moving from darkness to light. That's what's happening. He's explaining what's happening as we move from darkness to light. I'm also opposed to the NASB initially because I think all the verbs in this section are past tense and they should be translated as looking back. I have a slight problem with the ESV, which I'll get to in just a moment, but from now on I'm going to actually read from the ESV because it at least translates the following verbs in the past tense from here on. But let's, let's go forward and we'll get back to what Isaiah is doing as he describes the transition from darkness to light. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness, who are they? Who are the people who walked in darkness that we're talking about? What was the darkness? It was the 30 years. It was the time when Assyria was coming. Remember, the context for this is Assyria is coming. They're going to devastate everything. It's going to be an awful time. It's going to look like, in fact, God is going to have turned his face from you. But don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. He's Just stick with this word. A remnant will return. Those people that were in that darkness who had to not listen to the people encouraging them to consult spiritists and mediums, who had to not curse God, who had to remain faithful during that time, the people who walked in darkness saw a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light shined. What a vast difference, right? He looks back, he says, you multiplied the nation, you increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil. And that's exactly what happened. 185,000 dead bodies with nothing but spoil. They just were able to take whatever they wanted. Because the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. Who was the oppressor who had a rod in chapter 10? Sennacherib, right? Assyria. All those you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. They have so much spoil, they can just use it for burning. They've just 185,000 men worth of spoil outside their walls. Now, what is the day of Midian? All this happened as at the day of Midian. Well, several times Israel has interfaced with Midian. Uh, David talked about an incident with Balaam, uh, when he was in Second Peter, and there was war against the Midianites in Numbers 31 as a result of that. But the one we think about most in our family is that of, what is it? Brave Gideon had 300 men, but who had a host? The Midianites had a host, right? That's a song we sing in our family. Um, Gideon face the Midianites, right? And we know that that's what Isaiah has in mind here, because if you go to, to section 10, and I didn't bore you with the details, but this section is also structured as a chiasm. 
And in section 10, look at chapter 10, verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod and lifts up his staff against you the way Egypt did. For in a very little while, my indignation against you will be spent and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And Yahweh of hosts will arouse a scourge against him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it up the way he did in Egypt. So it will be in that day that his burden will be removed from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of fatness. So there you see, he's talking about what happened at the rock of Oreb, which is where Gideon had his slaughter against the Midianites. So he's talking about the Midianites here and Gideon's battle against them. And you'll recall that was a very similar battle. What, what time of day did they fight against the Midianites? It was nighttime, right? Why? How do you know that? Whoever said it? Yeah, they had lanterns, remember? They used, they used light to, to... And did they have to kill the Midianites that they were greatly outnumbered by, the 300 men? No, right? They didn't. In the darkness, the dawn lifted, and they had despoiled all the Midianites and, and all the difficulty that the Midianites had had on them for the last seven years. The darkness that they had lived under was gone, and they were able to overcome with God's help and with the light of dawn. And that is, I believe, what is happening in chapter 9, verse 1. So 9, verse 1, where it says, In former times, in earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he made it glorious. When did he do that? He did it through Gideon, right? Look at this map here. Okay, so again, nothing as relates to the Assyrian crisis, is happening up there, right? We're all down in Judah, near Jerusalem, right? But as he begins to, de- to describe the light that's going to come, he says, hey, there was a time. There was a time when people walked in darkness in Naphtali and Judah. There was a time when they were oppressed by Midian. They had to, remember Gideon was threshing his wheat in the wine press because they had to hide it all because they, were, they would come. If they saw anything, they would take it from them. There was a time when they were treated lightly, when they were treated with contempt. But later on, he made it glorious. And he did it by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles. And you can see from the map of Gideon's battles, that's exactly where that happened. It's right there in the land of Naphtali and Zebulon. And in chapter 10, he goes on to say the defeat of Assyria is going to be just like that. And that's what he's doing in chapter 9. He's looking back and saying in the same way that Gideon and his folks were delivered and brought glory... That's what's going to happen here. That's what's going to happen here. You're going to look. The people that were in darkness are going to see a great light. The people that were in the valley of the shadow of death, on them a light is going to dawn, and all that yoke and that burden is going to be lifted as it was in the day of Midian. So that's what it's about. And that gets us to the very last thing for today, which is Isaiah 9, 6-7. Now, now, briefly, I want to say, before I say some things uh, that won't sound really good. Uh, I, I just said that that section is about Midian and Gideon, right? 9, 1 to 6. But Matthew very clearly says it's about Jesus, right? But again, hopefully this is the second time you've heard me teach this. That's the same as was true of the child born to Isaiah. It was about Maharshal Hashbaz, but that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't fulfill it in a greater way, similar to this. And I'm about to say some things about Isaiah 9, 6 to 7 that I think um, will be 
you know, disconcerting because Isaiah, if you ever think of a chapter or a section that's clearly about Jesus, I mean, it was the virgin shall be born, but this one, right? I mean, uh, and I'm going to say this actual section, if you look, he's talking about Hezekiah, and many people believe this, um, especially Jewish people, but many Christians do as well, and I'm just going to say it's just like all the others. It's just like all the others. This is a promise to those people in those days of this king who would be born, who would help deliver them from the Assyrian crisis, but we'll see next week. I do not deny that this is ultimately about Christ, okay? But let me explain how you can see that it's also, at least initially, to those who heard Isaiah, was about Hezekiah. He says in verse 6, and he's, again, taking his last explanation of how it is that this is going to be a change, how they're going to be shattered, how Assyria is not going to, over, uh, in the end, prevail not only because there will be no more gloom, not only because God will be a sanctuary, not only because they'll break the burden, not only because every boot of the warrior is going to be for um, fuel for the fire, but because a child was born. And again, it is, Hebrew tenses are hard. Hebrew tenses are hard, but this, out of all of nine, this is the clearest one that's in the past. A child was born to us. A son was given, and the government rested on his shoulders, and his name is called. So essentially, do you remember when we did Hosea and we talked about the order, the things that, you know, as you're narrating something, things go in an order? That's the kind of verbs we have here. There was a child born, a son was given, and then the government rested on his shoulders, and then his name is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there's no end to the increase of his government or peace, to the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Who is this child? Well, I'm arguing it's someone who was born before the dawning of light. He's looking back saying a child was born. Someone before the dawning of light in the Assyrian crisis who became ruler. Now, just a couple clues that I think help uh, argue for this. Look at how this section began. If you go back to 8.11, we totally skipped over this, but it says, For thus Yahweh spoke to me with mighty power, with mighty power. That's literally, in fact, you'll have it in the NASB. I don't know if other verses do, but with strength of hand, right? In Hebrew, that's hezkathayad, which sounds very much like hezkayahu in Hebrew, which is Hezekiah, right? So he, introduce, he introduces the section and says, with a strong hand, I'm going to tell you all this. And that word is, again, a play on the name, or very close to the name Hezekiah. Or look at how the section ends in 9-7, right? What's the very last thing said? The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Well, where is that phrase found in the Bible? Only two other places. It's found at Isaiah 37, 32. In Hezekiah's prayer, For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts shall perform this. So this is Hezekiah praying. Remember I said in the middle in that section there's a historical narrative that explains what happens. And that's what happens in, Hezekiah, in Isaiah 37. Hezekiah prays. They're delivered, and that same phrase of the zeal of the Lord of hosts performing. The only other time it's used is in 2 Kings 19, again, in the context of Hezekiah and God delivering the nation from Assyria. What about the names, you'll say? 
right? What about the names? Well, a wonderful counselor, right? A wonderful counselor. Let me, let me read for you uh, 2 Chronicles 32.3. 2 Chronicles 32.3 says, When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem, he decided with his officers, that's the same word, he counseled, he took counsel with his officers, to cut off the supply of water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. You've all ever heard of Hezekiah's tunnel? Right? Hezekiah knew he had short time, the Assyrians were coming, he had to figure out a way to get water into the city or they were toast. And so he took two teams of people, and they started digging from opposite sides, and they met in the middle only like, I don't remember, four feet off or six feet off, and it was really an engineering marvel. They shut off the water outside, and they had water inside the city to help them with, you know, withstand the siege until God acted. And Hezekiah is described as one taking great counsel in that, right? Again, whether that's convincing or not is not the point. Uh, well, it is the point. Whether that's convincing or not, I can't say, but that is the point I'm trying to say. Is He, he is called a counselor as referred to that. What about mighty God, right? Mighty God. This one's hard because in chapter 10, he's going to use that verse 21, a remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. And it is very clear, and maybe next year, 52 weeks from now, we can cover Isaiah 10. It's very clear that's the Lord. That's no, that's no human. But I will say this, the name Hezekiah is a combination of two Hebrew words. You know what they are, what they might mean? What do you think Yah and Hezekiah? That's the name of God. And Hezek is strength or might. Right? So his name itself means the mighty Lord, the mighty Yahweh. Eternal Father. Boy, it really gets hard here, and I'm starting to sweat here with this argument. But I'm going to close with this. I'm actually going to just close with this. If you'll think back to what we taught last year, Isaiah 7:14, it speaks of a child to be born who's called what? Do you remember? A child will be born and he shall call his name Emmanuel, right? And that child was named Maher Shalho Hashbaz. And Emmanuel means God with us. And in no way, and I'm convinced that Maher Shalho Hashbaz is the, is the sign child that's promised. In no way is he God or divine or anything like that, right? And in the same way, this child that's born, it doesn't necessarily mean that he himself has to be divine, an eternal father, just because he has this name appended to him, any more than Maharshal Hashbaz had to be divine as Emmanuel. Now, I will be quick next week to say that Isaiah spoke more than he realized, and the true child to fulfill this was divine, was born of a virgin, was truly God with us, right? There's no question that Isaiah spoke more than he realized and that those things are true. But in this situation, even if I can't explain it well to you now, uh, I, do not, I do think that this child that's being described is Hezekiah and that this is not a, uh, an argument that means I can't hold that because he's called Eternal Father or Prince of Peace. Now, before we give up singing Handel's Messiah at Christmas time, I do want you to come back next week. And again, you'll find in the same way that Isaiah 7 was fulfilled in Isaiah 8, but also given its ultimate fulfillment in Matthew 1, so Hezekiah does not ultimately fulfill the picture of what Isaiah had in mind as a righteous king to come who would fully trust in God, who would never turn away and stay faithful to him 
and not sin. We'll read in Chronicles that God actually left Hezekiah to see what was in his heart. Do you know what he found? He found the same thing that was in Sennacherib's heart. What was that? He found the same thing that was in Ahaz's heart. Hezekiah, as righteous as he was, as fabulous as he was, as the prayer which he prayed, which was so wonderful, and what deliverance he shepherded and led, was ultimately no better in the, in the, in the true sense, in, in, in the ultimate sense, than Ahaz or Sennacherib. God doesn't have anyone. If, you, if Hezekiah doesn't fit the bill, if David doesn't fit the bill, who's going to be the one to bring in ultimate deliverance? And that's what Isaiah 40 to 66 is all about. Who is going to? Himself. He's going to do it himself. There is no human that's going to be able to do it. But it was a horrible time, and it was an amazing deliverance, and Hezekiah ought to be celebrated despite his failures. And this chapter, I would guess, this verse was celebrated by Isaiah's disciples as something they held on to because they knew a child had been born who was going to do this for them, who was going to be the one to make sure that God's might could be used for their deliverance, and Hezekiah was that person. So we'll finish with prayer. I know that was long and hard. Next week, we'll talk about, hey, this passage was used 12 times in the New Testament, so let's look and see what they had to say about it because I didn't talk about the New Testament at all. I just talked about the people in Isaiah's day and what they would have thought about it. But let's look at the New Testament next week and see what they say about this passage. So let's pray, and then we'll sing and be dismissed for fellowship. Lord, this is a message that was uh, very specific and focused on uh, the disciples, the faithful of your followers and 2,700 years ago, but there is much, Father, that we can learn from it. Uh, there are promises that you've made to us, and there are days of waiting where, uh, Father, mockers, as David has been teaching us from Second Peter, will mock and say, there's nothing that's changed. There's, it's all the same as it's always been. You guys are crazy. And it could get really hard, even. It could uh, get very difficult, Father. Times could get difficult, and it might be very easy to look for ways out that don't involve fearing you, that don't keep you at the center. Surely, Father, we are so thankful for all the many advances and things that we've learned, but if it all comes down to it, if we must give up one thing, the one thing we don't give up is you. And we want to fear you and trust you above all else, uh, come what may. And know, Father, that in the same way that you delivered Gideon and brought in light, in the same way that you delivered Judah and, and brought in a dawn there through your mighty acts. Father, in that same way that uh, we can trust you, we can hold on to your word, we can uh, remain believing uh, no matter what we see around us. And Father, to the law and to the testimony, to your word, let's be faithful to that and know that if we do, there'll be a dawn. We thank you, Father, for the, uh, the grace that we've had. We've had such a wonderful uh, experience, Father. You've given us a free nation. You've given us people to gather with. You've given us all these blessings. But God, make us a people uh, who are like your disciples, who uh, no matter what will remain faithful to you. And thank you for the good gifts you've given us in our lifetime so far. In Jesus' name, amen.